0: Thank you all. Can you hear me? You can, okay. Well, it would have been terrible if the earth had shaken one day after I came. You know, if, if I'd asked for God's blessing and next day the whole building shook, I would have felt terribly embarrassed. So uh, I'm glad that uh, you're able to make it at the right time. It's not difficult to keep your word when you say you're gonna come back to Bali. Uh, it's not tough at all. So we happen to be doing some meetings uh, Actually, I started off a month ago in Germany was doing some meetings with the American troops out there and then from there to Thailand Thailand to Singapore Singapore to India and India to here and we leave tonight to make one more stop before getting back to Atlanta which is home and uh, I'm afraid we'll only be there for a couple of days and then start uh, wandering the globe again. But those will be closer at hand and that'll be easier to do. But before I move in with my thoughts, I just want to say thank you so much, Pastor Don, for inviting us here. We're honored. He flew in all the way from Rhode Island here for this event. So it had better be a good evening. And uh, I'm glad it has already been one so that the responsibility is not all mine. Thank you and David for receiving us uh, at an unearthly hour. And thank you also to our hosts, uh, Jimmy and Michelle. You've been tremendous hosts to us. We've really enjoyed a couple of days and put on some weight. So it's hard to go back home and tell our families we were working uh, when you have this kind of a break from uh, that kind of work, which we do all the time. I also want to introduce you to two or three of my colleagues. I'm traveling with Sanj and also joined here by Ruth, who is our chief publicist officer and does all of the uh, frontline work and many, many representations with television and media and all of that. She's joined us uh, from our team in Atlanta, but she was also with us in India. India. So thank you, Ruth, for being here. I know it's tiring. And then my home-based colleague here, that's Tracy. Nice to have you here tonight, Tracy. We put Tracy on because the rest of us were quite ugly, so we decided to put her on the team so that overall we'd be average and balance out that way. But it's wonderful to be part of it. There's 93 speakers on our team based in 15 countries as evangelists, apologists, and we are in every continent. And so wherever we go, we meet up with some of them. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for hosting us this is one of our favorite stops in the world and now we are turning the corner three more days and then we'll be home uh, in Atlanta so do pray for us we are grateful for our friendships people ask how easy is it to leave your family constantly It's very difficult I've done it now for 47 years and on average now is over 200 days a year uh, that I am on the road Uh, so it's very hard to do that but maybe the secret of a happy marriage, because uh, <laughs> every time, I don't know why you're applauding. Is this a, pro- <laughs> is this a problem here or what? Really nice to uh, go back home. I'm a father of three and a grandfather of five. Uh, Winston Churchill was told to her by a corporal. The corporal said, Mr. Churchill, I've never told you about my grandchildren, have I? Churchill said no, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. So I won't take much of your time telling you about my grandkids. Questions, constant questions. We are plagued by deep questions of the soul. And as apologists, we really are involved in the business of trying our best to answer the questions that people ask within the boundaries of reason. There are reasonable questions, there are unreasonable questions. And sometimes questions are asked that are self-defeating questions. Sometimes questions reveal more our problems than they do our solutions. I remember years ago when I just left Bangkok and arrived in New York, New Jersey, to connect to Atlanta. And uh, as I stopped by and uh, you know you look like a passport picture after a journey like that so I'd arrived and I would just walked over to my gate to catch my flight and I looked at the marquee and it said uh, another city and I thought I was going to go to Atlanta from there so there was a lady at the corner I tapped her on the shoulder I said excuse me ma'am is this going to where the marquee says or is this going to Atlanta from here she said it's going to Atlanta I said that's good So I turned around to go and get myself a cup of coffee, and I heard the patter of feet behind me running. And before I could turn around, a tap on my shoulder, it was the same lady. She said, excuse me, are you Ravi Zacharias? Sadly, between the white hair and the horrible voice, once I opened my mouth, uh, people know they've heard it somewhere. So she looked at me and said, are you Ravi Zacharias? I said, I'm afraid so. And then she said this, that is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I didn't know you had questions as well. I didn't make up that story. It would be impossible for my imagination to have created a story like that. And, you know, the thing is, she looked very sincere. I didn't know you had questions as well. My goodness, maybe she was just being kind. I suppose she was. But the truth of the matter is, we all have questions. In fact, it was sitting in my living room in Delhi when I was a teenager, night after night listening to a program called The Choice of the People, coming in from what was then called Salon and now Sri Lanka. And every second or third night, There would be a narration by the well-known singer, Ed Ames. And this is the way it went, three or four of the stanzas of that song. From the canyons of the mine, we wander on and stumble blind, way through the often tangled maze of starless nights and sunless days, hoping for some kind of clue, a road to lead us to the truth. But who will answer? Side by side, two people stand. Together vowing hand in hand, that love's embedded in their hearts. But soon an empty feeling starts to overwhelm their hollow lives. And if they ask the hows and whys, who will answer? Far upon a distant hill, a young man's lying very still. His arms will never hold his child. Because a bullet running wild has struck him down, and now he cries, My God, oh why, oh why, and who will answer? As neath the spreading mushroom tree, the world revolves with apathy, while overhead a row of specks roars on, drowned out by discotheques. And if the secret buttons press because one man has been outguessed, who will answer? If the soul is darkened by a fear it cannot name, if the mind is baffled when the rules don't fit the game, who will answer? Who will answer? Who will answer? Who will answer? And I remember as a teenager, listening to that as often as I could and writing down those words because I wanted to make sure that I got those words down pat and didn't end up missing a beat in that. Because I was struggling with those very questions. But what fascinated me about that narration, and I'm going back now nearly half a century, in the 60s, What fascinated me about that song is the way it was worded. And ironically, by the way, the background music was the hum of some kind of an Eastern chant. Who will answer? Who will answer? Who will answer? But that's what fascinated me. It was not what is the answer. It was who will answer. Who has the authority to give me the answer from a broken home? To the potential nightmare of a nuclear holocaust and all that is wrapped into every stanza the death of a child or whatever some years ago nicholas walter storf who is one of the finest philosophers of religion in the united states professor at yale lost his son in a hiking accident his son was only in his 20s and he wrote a book after that called lament for a son. You don't really read that to be inspired as much as you read it to be somber and reflective. There are scores of one-liners in there that you read and you put the book down. This was truly a father mourning the death of a son. In one of those brief stanzas, he says this, when we have overcome absence with phone calls, Winglessness with airplanes, summer heat with air conditioning. When we have overcome all these and much more besides, then there will abide two things with which we must cope, the evil in our hearts and death. When all of these gaps and these chasms have been traversed through the intelligence of science or whatever, when we've got our air conditioning problem solved, when we've got our distance problem solved, when we've got all these issues that we supposedly can solve through our intellect, there still remain two problems, he said, with which we must cope. Whole area of evil in our hearts and death. Those two realities transcend cultures. They transcend all that our languages can separate us from. But we want to understand, how do I explain this evil in my heart and what happens to a human being when he or she dies? Open your newspapers every day. What do you see? Somebody has killed someone. Somebody has betrayed someone. Somebody is suing someone. Someone wants to attack someone. All of this accumulation and accretion of evil, we struggle with, but we don't have a place to even define them. Who will answer? What is the answer when all inventions have done their bit? You see, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, says G.K. Chesterton. Listen, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain meaninglessness, actually comes from being weary of pleasure. When there's nothing else to enchant you, nothing else to bring exhilaration to you, think of this man who hung himself in a jail cell, a man that, whose name I had never heard till all of this horrible story started about Epstein. Hundreds of millions of dollars finally looking for a police piece of cloth by which to kill himself. Pleasure had caught up with him and left him absolutely desolate in his wake, destroying a lot of people. And so I turned to the one who is the answer and to the one who gives the answer. And it happened in this conversation in John chapter 18. Jesus is talking to a ruler over him, Pilate, but he is also surrounded by religious authorities. Religion and politics had converged together to try to put him up on two pieces of timber. Isn't it fascinating? Those invested with religious authority and those invested with political authority when they came up face to face with the only perfect person who has ever walked the earth. The only answer they could have to stop him was to crucify him. And so before that crucifixion, says Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, rather than answering, asks a question of his questioner. Jesus always questioned his questioner, and by doing that, he opened up his questioner within their own assumptions. You see, when you question the questioner, Two things happen, you open them up within their own assumptions, and you determine the entry point of the discussion. You open them up within their own assumptions and determine the entry point of the discussion. So he says, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Intent is prior to content. What Jesus is saying is, is this your genuine question, or are you just being a setup man here in order to do this dirty work. Pilate says, am I a Jew? He replied, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Have you noticed that? Jesus never ran for political office. He wanted to rule, but not by the laws of a nation. He wanted to rule in your heart and mind. That is the kind of kingdom he talks about. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus said, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate says, what is truth? And went out. Can you imagine? Pilate said, what is truth? And walked away. He never wanted really to have the answer. What is truth? Standing three feet away from the embodiment of truth, he never waited for the answer. How ironic is that? You would have have thought at least out of courtesy. He said, I wonder what he's going to say. Jesus said, they that are on the side of truth, listen to me. Pilate proved his point. He didn't want to listen to him. It is an incredible statement that Napoleon Bonaparte made years ago, and he said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, And at this hour, millions of men and women would die for him. Napoleon, Charlemagne, Alexander, myself, we built empires, but it is not going to last because we built ours on force, compulsion. Jesus built his empire on love. So this one who takes the privilege and prerogative of answering your question, And being the answer to your question, who will answer, gives us these truths for your heart and for mine. What is it that Jesus said that is so unique and so comprehensive? Follow me now. When people are looking for an answer to truth, there are two ways in which they can look for it. One is in individual statements. And that is called the correspondence theory of truth, where individual statements correspond to reality. If you say, Ravi, how did you get here tonight? And I give you the name of a uh, make of a car and give you the license plate and tell you where it is parked, you can verify that against an objective uh, uh, demonstration. It is corresponding to reality. That's what you're testing me for is Ravi's answer truthful in that one statement he made. But suppose you were to go out of here, and that car is not there. And you say, there's no such car there. I say, I promise I came in that particular car, there it is. And then you go to the security guy there and say, there was a car here with such and such. He said, I don't know what happened, but some police guys came and just with their forklift, Lifted a black car with such and such a license plate and took it away from here, and they said they wanted to come and pick it up at such and such a place. Now the case is getting a bit more complex. You're not just looking for a one statement answer, you're looking for an explanation of why that particular vehicle is not there. That is what is called the coherence theory of truth. Correspondence deals with individual questions. Coherence deals with a series of answers. And in a court of law, both of those are used by the legal team. They are looking for your answers to correspond to reality. They're looking for the whole narrative to fit together without contradiction. Because two mutually exclusive statements cannot both be true at the same time without qualifying at least one of them. That's what I want you to think about now. Jesus explains and answers your questions in a way that is so unique. The first is that he describes your condition and mine perfectly. That we are sinners before God. That we have violated the purpose for which he has made us. How do we explain this whole wretchedness of sin? He talks about like a dog going back to its vomit. How do people do the horrible things they do which doesn't exactly make sense whatsoever? I remember in the 80s, when I was in the thick of beginning my ministry, I had been invited to Poland to speak. And I was speaking in Warsaw. This was still during the days of the Cold War. And those dark, foggy days in the middle of winter, I remember my host said to me one day, do mind if I drive you and show you the concentration camp of Auschwitz I said to him I said Henrik I've actually seen I've seen Buchenwald and Dachau and if he said no no those were concentration camps Auschwitz was a death camp I don't know if you've seen a death camp I want to take you and have you see Auschwitz so we got into the car and we drove and emotionally I wasn't prepared for what I was going to see because as I said I'd seen some of these, but they were not in any way connected the way Auschwitz was going to connect with my heart. And as I walked in and walked from room to room and realized that the commandant there was obliterating humanity at the rate of 12,000 every day, I don't know how many there are here tonight, but there's certainly not 12,000. And if you were to take 12,000 people and put them in a large auditorium, and realize how they were obliterated every day to a total of millions by the end of the Nazi Holocaust. And the worst room was to walk into the room where I saw small suitcases, small toothbrushes, tiny sets of clothes where children had been obliterated like that, and pictures of little boys standing like this Shoulders raised up, looking absolutely terrified, like zombies, as they were castrated by Mengele in his experimentation on twins. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, how on earth did intelligent people degenerate to that kind of demonic behavior? One young gal stormed out of there, sobbing, and she just couldn't take it anymore. The final room was where they were put into the gas chambers. They weren't told that. They were told they were going to be deloused. So they are gathered in large numbers and taken in. They are stripped naked, men and women, and they are put in there. And as that iron door came banging shut, suddenly they realized what was happening. And somebody would shout, gas, as the spigots would be turned on. And they were so sandwiched together flesh to flesh that nobody could even fall on their own. But one by one, the whole room would obliterate all of them by that poisonous gas. And as you entered the room, it said this in the words of Hitler, I want to create a generation of young people devoid of a conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. You see, in the Garden of Eden, two things happen that are incredible to my way of thinking. There was only one law. Only one law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day you do this, you're going to die. And the tempter comes and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. The fact is, the day you eat it, you're going to be as God. The tempter was half right, but deathly wrong. What he was really saying is, Play God. Don't listen to what your creator has said. Play God. And what actually happened at Eden was rather than allowing God to be the definer of good and evil, we became the God of God and redefined everything. And now, as you look at our world, we've lost all definitions. All definitions. Once upon a time, we were told it's only science that is going to be the savior of the disciplines. Now, even science doesn't matter. It's how you feel, what you desire, and how you think of yourself. That's the self-referencing point of our moral law. There is no moral law over above us anymore. Imagine if everybody drove that way on the road now. Sometimes, I feel in India, that's what we do. You know, we're all driving according to our own rules. Somebody said in England, you drive on the left. In America, you drive on the right. In India, we drive in the shade, <laughs> wherever it's comfortable for us to do. When we look at the red light, we think it's Christmas. And we just keep going, you know. It's, imagine the chaos when that happens. The chaos. Sometimes you come to an intersection and you say, am I ever going to get out of here? And the chaos and traffic is compared, to, is nothing compared to the chaos on, in cyber world today. As I've said, I don't think it is accidental that the logo of one of the best selling machines in cyber world is a bitten apple. See, it's fascinating when you think of all that transpires on a given day with information. And we have no idea what is true anymore. We talk of fake news. It's really not fake news. It's fake people. Fake people make fake news. The news didn't make itself fake. And that's really what I want to talk to you about. Are you really who you claim to be? You see, the law and the moral law is like a mirror. It can tell you your face is dirty. But the mirror will never clean your face for you. The reality is, that your sin and my sin is the most indisputable fact about who we really are. We do things. We don't do things. And every time I look at my own heart, and I struggle with so many things, and I say to myself, how does anybody dispute the fact that we are sinners? How does anybody dispute the fact? As Malcolm Muggeridge said, It is at once the most empirically verifiable fact at the same time that it is the most intellectually resisted. Sin is the most empirically verifiable fact at the same time that we intellectually resist it. I was speaking at one of the major universities on what it means to be human. And one woman stood up and shouted at me and she said, I don't believe that mankind is basically evil. I believe that we are basically good. And as I started to give her the facts and figures of all that goes on, she said, I don't care what the facts and figures are. And the louder she shouted, the more she proved my point. <laughs> Reminded me of a classmate I had in Toronto. And uh, one day, you know, that was in the, in the 70s, and it, uh, it was a day where all kinds of phenomena were going around, phenomena were going around, where we'd be sat down in class, two or three of us, and we'd have to tell one good thing about the other person and one bad thing about the other person. I don't know whoever came up with this idea, but we used to do that. So we're, I've got to conjure up my head. I'm finding it harder, actually, to think of some good things that I wanted to say. The bad things were easier to see. And as the class was over, this one guy, I'm not making this up, by the way, it's true. He got up and stormed out of there. So I followed him. I said, what's the problem? He said, I don't believe it. I simply don't believe it. I said, what didn't you believe? We were going to the mailbox. He said, you know what those guys told me? I said, what? They told me that I didn't know how to take criticism. (laughs) I thought to myself, I don't think I can help this guy. (laughs) He's storming out angry at the fact that he was told he couldn't take criticism. He's proving the point. And the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, what does the Bible say? And all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Lust, greed, and pride. The three temptations that stalk all of us. Lust, greed, and pride. I don't care who you are. I don't care how we pretend, but one of these three seeks to fell us almost every day. Lust, greed, pride. And the third is the worst of it all, and yet we so seldom talk about it. Somebody in India said to me, actually in Singapore, same thing, what if we are actually good? Are you telling me that I can be good and still end up in hell? Hell, I never told him that. But that's what he was saying. I said, you're making two mistakes. one, you know, I said in an open forum. I said, number one is that Uh, No matter how good we are, are you saying we don't need to be forgiven by God for anything? No forgiveness? I said, number two, Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. We're dead in sin. And because of pride, we bury ourselves and our ego remains strong. And I tell you one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible is when the woman who'd had five broken homes looks at Jesus and he tells her everything about her and when he tells her all she had been through she was shocked and she runs back to her village and says come and see this person who knew everything about me basically saying and he did not rub my nose in the dirt he did not rub my nose in the dirt ladies and gentlemen The first thing Jesus says about you and me is that we are all sinners. What is sin? If you want to end a newspaper interview and the newspaper looks at you and says, what's right? Editor looks at you and says, what's wrong with the world? And you say, we are all sinners. That's the end of the interview. They don't want to do anything more with you. So I don't say that anymore. They say, what's the problem with the world? I say, we have violated our purpose. And then they look at you like, what's our purpose? I said, I'm sure glad you asked. <laughs> That's what life is about, to define your purpose. And when you read the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen, it's not so much that you read the word of God as much as the word of God is reading you. So first is the recognition of sin. Second is his provision for my malady. He is the only one who provides for that malady in the reality of what Calvary was all about. You see, there are two things about the cross that are absolutely brilliant when you think about it. Number one, it is providing for you in a way that you could never provide for yourself. You will never be perfect enough to be a sacrifice for sin. And number two, it is something you can never earn. You can never earn your salvation. See, time is something that is loaned to us. Eternity is a gift to us. When that time is loaned, one day it's up. You'll have to return it. Say, I'm done. I'm going to be called back. But eternity is a gift that God has given to you and to me. And what a beautiful gift that is. That gift that offers you forgiveness. You know, many years ago, there was a well-known preacher by the name of Jim Baker He directed that empire called PTL, praise the Lord. I remember when i just started writing, my wife was with me and I was standing in one of the uh, publisher's booths, and a few feet down I could see Jim and his wife Tammy sitting on gold chairs, gold thrones, and people coming there literally almost uh, doing obeisance, kissing by the back of their hand and all of that, and I was fascinated. That we're all merely human beings doing what god has called us to do supposedly and yet here this almost worship going on but i never said anything in my heart i just tucked it away and i said i don't like what i'm seeing time went on and he made some big mistakes sad mistakes and he blundered and nobody felt the pain more than him and his wife some years went by i remember being back at the booksellers convention and I looked at him. He had already been released from prison. He didn't look like a shadow of himself. He'd lost weight. The cheeks were sunken. Once upon a time, so prosperous-looking, now he looked a shadow of himself. And I nudged my wife, and I said, I think that's Jim Baker, although we can't recognize him. And that night, he spoke. It was one of the most moving talks I have ever heard. And the book is titled, I was wrong. I was wrong. And he told a story. He said, when I was in the throes of my incarceration, I was cleaning the bathrooms one day, sloshing around there, pushing the water away. And one of the guards came to me and said, you uh, have a guest. And Baker said, I don't want to see my guest. He said, I think you want to see this one. He said, no, I don't. He said, Jimmy, you better come. You want to see this man. He said, I'm not going to go and get changed then. I've got all this water splashed over me in my overalls. He said, that's fine. Come as you are. So he throws them up, down, and he walks over towards the waiting room. And who's waiting to see him there but Billy Graham. Billy was a pretty tall guy. Jim Baker wasn't. And as Jim Baker saw him, his heart melted in the sight of Billy Graham. And Billy just strode over towards him like that, wrapped his arms around him and held him tight. And Jim Baker just sobbed like a little babe in the arms of a pretty big man. And he said, do you know what it feels like to be the most distrusted preacher in the country, embraced by the most trusted preacher in the country. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know what it is like to be embraced by the forgiveness of Jesus? That's why this hymn writer says, what language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. You know, my oldest grandson, Jude, is eight years old. He has an amazing vocabulary. I don't know where he gets it from, but he's got all kinds of big words. And he goes to a school three days a week. The other two days, he's homeschooled. And one day, the teacher wrote a note. Last Good Friday, actually. it was seven at that time wrote a note to his mother Naomi our daughter she said Naomi you'll never believe what happened today she said it was Good Friday so I sat all these first graders down and as I sat them down I brought a basin of water and washed their feet on Good Friday I washed the feet of these little children and then she said Jude walked over to me and said teacher do you mind if we wash your feet too she said, that had never happened before. She said, every Good Friday, I wash the feet of my, t- my class. But nobody had ever said, can we wash yours? So Jude said, can we wash your feet, teacher? So she sat down, and they went and filled up the basin of water. You can imagine the mess they were making in it. And they put it in front of her, and they w- washed her feet and wiped it clean. And then Jude looked at her, and here's what he said. I want you to know that your feet are now clean, (laughs) but your heart is purer, and our hearts are purer since we met you. Our hearts are purer since we met you. If the Lord Jesus were here, he'd be very pleased to wash your feet and mine but more importantly he'd want to wash your heart and mine and to make us clean I sometimes think about the cross and shut my eyes and try to see the cruel nails the crown of thorns and Jesus crucified for me but even could I see him die I would but see a little part of that great love which like a fire is always burning in his heart the cross means forgiveness for you and me. His diagnosis, his provision, and time has run out for me now, but I'm going to just make two hasty thoughts. Number one and of the two is that he is your strength in times of trial and suffering. Let me just say this. God conquers through the mystery of suffering, not in spite of it, but through it. God conquers in the mystery of suffering, not in spite of it, but through it. I don't know what you're going through. You may be going through a great financial crisis. You may be going through a broken relationship. You may be going through struggling in health. We all go through the twists and turns of life. But I want you to know, He promises to sustain and carry you through. Remember Jesus even struggling before Calvary? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? But not my will, yours be done. And that provided the salvation for you and for me. So ladies and gentlemen, the struggle you're going through when you come out on the other side is God's purpose for you to shape you into the instrument that he really is wants you to be. When we get to the presence of God, we look back and see that we actually learned more through our periods of pain than we ever learned from our periods of enjoyment. And so the reality of sin, the provision for my malady, his equipment in suffering, and fourthly and quickly, he of all is the purest of any human being, As the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, you will never see another life so perfect. But the last of them is this. Death could not hold him. He rose again from the dead. That resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to just think of two things before I close. If Jesus were a charlatan, if he were a thug, if he were making pretense of who he was, but wasn't really the way, the truth, and the life. You know what he would have said about his death? After I die, I will spiritually rise again. That's what he would have said. And how do you prove that false? You can't. Because even if you bring the corpse and say, well, here he is, ah, but he didn't say that he would physically rise, he would spiritually rise. But Jesus didn't say that. He said he would bodily rise again. All that the politicians and the religious leaders had to do to destroy this message was to present the body. And now you should see the theories they tried to come up with on what happened to the body. The resurrection of Jesus. Second thing, if Jesus were scheming and manufacturing this story, he would have picked some of the best, strongest men on the basis of which to testify. No, the first witnesses were who? Women. And why is that important? Because at that time, a woman's testimony wasn't even accepted in a court of law. What a scenario. What a scenario. The Son of God. Because the disciples not like a mighty army. They were like a bunch of frightened Boy Scouts hiding. (laughs) And the women come to him and say, what are you boys doing? Do you know what's happened there? And they didn't want to believe it. And Peter, whose patron saint was, whenever there's a 30-second silence, say something. Always want to say something. He gathered his coins and he just ran as fast as he could. And then, listen, The two guys walking on the Emmaus road. And the third person joins them is Jesus, but they don't know it. And so he looks at them and says, what are you boys talking about? They say, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what's happened? The irony was he was the only one in Israel who did know what had happened. (laughs) And so he starts explaining all of history. If there's one message I would like to have heard when our Lord was on earth, that would be it, connecting all the dots in history. They're so fascinated and flabbergasted. They say, we'll buy you dinner if you'll come in with us. He goes in. Here's the irony. As he takes a piece of bread and breaks it, they realize who he is. The speech opened the hearts. The broken bread reminded them of communion. That's God's desire for you, communion with the living God. And he rose again from the dead in order to give that truth to you and me. Diagnosis provides for the malady, sustains you in suffering, the purest being there was, and much else, and rose again from the dead. When my mother died in 1974, I was 28 years old at that time. And all I could think of was that she's gone. She's gone. She's gone. She was in her 50s. And I said to my dad, you asked me to speak at a funeral. I can't do it. I don't have the heart to do it. Because I can just think of one word. She's gone, gone, gone. And my dad said, son, if you must use the word gone, finish the thought. Gone where? And I got on my knees, and I thought to myself, she's not just gone. She's gone home to be with the Lord. You know, we travel all over the globe. There are wonderful places we see, just like the last three days have been a touch of heaven. But then I get back home, and I get on on my knees, and I kiss the kitchen floor. It's nice to be back home. If my earthly home brings me that kind of joy, how much more our heavenly home He has made you for himself and your heart is restless until it finds its rest in him who will answer who will answer who will answer he will answer the lord jesus who says i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes unto the father except through me may god bless you as you reflect on these truths you've been a wonderful audience i'm sorry i've gone over my mark but you know Uh, You came all I came all the way here. I've got to finish my thoughts, so I hopefully I did something God bless you (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I think I've just found the answer right now to a hard question Uh, I imagine one day my daughter is going to say Daddy, what's the hardest job in the world? Here it is. Following this gentleman up onto <laughs> stage is <laughs> definitely the hardest job I've ever had in the world so far. So um, please have a seat. Um, So we're going to field some of the uh, questions that you all sent in to us. Um, we're going to try and get through a few, uh, some of the most popular ones. At this point, I do need to say as, as well that directly after this, this evening, unfortunately, Ravi has to fly out directly. Uh, so unfortunately, today we won't have time to meet with people afterwards, but... Um, I'm sure you'll be back again, right?
0: Look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah. Okay, and I hope these are reasonable questions. Uh, uh, we want to start with a very, very deep philosophical question first. Uh, what's your favorite food?
0: <laughs> Wherever I am. <laughs> Actually, uh, God gave me a wonderful set of taste buds. I enjoy the cuisines of the world and uh, I've really enjoyed the cuisine here it's been wonderful had a tremendous dinner the other night here and it was just a treat to the taste buds I love uh, Indonesian food here I love Italian food I love Middle Eastern food Uh, I even enjoy Mexican food and Every now and then, you have uh, anything that's spicy uh, gets, my, gets my palate. And so uh, so Indian food is, you know, one of my friends used to describe it as a hunk and a sip and a chunk and a blow. So, you just, so I, I like many of the cuisines of the world. And when we travel, we get to go to all kinds of restaurants. Yeah, even a nice, good Western dish. Uh, I like variety. And so... Uh, My, You know, when I was studying to prepare for the hotel industry, I gave it up because of many reasons, one of which was long hours. Uh, I was moving into the catering industry, and I said, boy, I'm never getting home till 3 in the morning. So I said, I I just don't know if I could live in the hotel work like that, and now I spend my life in hotels. But now I'm a guest, and that's the better side of hotel life when I go to bed because my worldview changes at 9 p.m. After 9 p.m., I like to be horizontal and just get <laughs> to bed. But I enjoy getting back to my hotel room. And, uh, but the cuisines of the world, I love all of them. Really enjoy it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. You probably work longer hours now than you would have in the hospitality industry, right. I, I would say as well. Okay. So our first question. It seems that every major religion is trying to break free. And get to heaven or nirvana or someplace. Doesn't that just show that all religions are basically the same? What makes Christianity so different? And is the path to heaven narrow?
0: Well, those are several questions in one. And uh, <laughs> if you don't mind me, i stand. It's easier on my back. So when I'm answering questions, I'll stand up. Uh, I've got. I'm the $6 million man. I've got titanium rods in my back. Uh, go like that, and then four clamps, eight screws, I can give you the weather report uh, when it starts getting colder. And uh, whenever I want to feel better, I go to Home Depot and just tell them to massage that back for me. They're the titanium rods. So it's easier to stand. There's a little bit of a flaw in the question, if you don't mind my saying so. It's a good question. But the little flaw is this. They're not all trying to break free. The word you've actually used comes from the pantheistic worldview of breaking free from the cycle of rebirths. That's what your assumption is, to attain either moksha or nirvana. But it does not talk about an existence beyond that. Nirvana literally is not even to will, not even to want. You get absorbed into the impersonal absolute. Your personal identity is no longer even recognizable. Now, one of the things that I think I have a problem with in the whole reincarnation theory, and Jesus was asked that question and he dented that. He said this got nothing to do with the person's previous life or whatever. So here is what I want to say to you. I was talking to a very qualified Buddhist monk in Thailand. And uh, she was talking about every birth being a rebirth and every birth you pay for the previous birth. Every birth is a rebirth and every birth you pay for the previous birth. So I, she was a PhD in philosophy. So I figured I could ask her a question. So I said, here it is. If every birth is a rebirth and every birth is paying for the previous birth, if you start from now, and move backwards. You've had a finite number of births. Not infinite number, or you wouldn't be here. Start from now and move backwards. You've had a finite number of births. She said, that's right. I said, if you've had a finite number of births, that means you had a first birth. She paused. She said, yeah. I said, that means every birth. Is not paying for a previous birth because what were you paying for in your first birth you know what she said she said uh, we do not ask such questions <laughs> so to try to break free yeah but that's not what the gospel is about If the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. In the gospel message, freedom is not breaking a repetitive cycle. Freedom is moving in a linear direction to be ultimately not in union with the impersonal absolute, but communion with your personal creator. There's a big difference between union, and that's why the union idea, the person meditates Because in meditation, it's an I. In prayer, it's an I, you. So there are big differences between these worldviews. So I say to you, your hunger is for a relationship. Your hunger is not for union. Your hunger is for communion. And when you see the answers of Jesus and what he gives to the questions of the soul, you can find that relationship with him and communion with your creator. No, you do not come back in a cycle of births. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Life moves in a linear direction, and you can find that relationship with him. I think the whole idea of repetitive births and each birth praying for the previous birth is actually not even logically sustainable, because you long ultimately for that relationship not becoming into oblivion where there's no such thing that for her for example another conversation the same conversation with that philosopher I said who is the perfect example of your worldview and she said the Dalai Lama I said and the goal is to cease to desire right she said yes I said why does he desire the liberation of Tibet She said to me Shall I say, because he chooses to? I said, so he is actually choosing to do that, which is an impediment to the very reason we all live, to move towards not desiring anymore and not willing anymore. I said, I hear you have a family, but you have left your family and walked in and moved into this monastery. She said, yes. I said, do you miss your kids? I said, do you miss your kids? And I could see the lips starting to quiver and the tears fill her eyes. We are creatures who are made for relationship. And may I tell you a little story? My grandson Jude once was looking at his mother who had lost her car keys. He was only about five years old at that time. And Naomi, his mother, my daughter, lost her car keys. And she slapped her forehead and said, I must be losing my mind. And he looked at her and said, mean, whatever you do don't lose your heart because I'm in there how do you beat that don't lose your heart because I'm in there that hunger for a relationship it is not to break off a cycle of rebirths it is to find the reason for your first birth and the only way you find that is through the rebirth that Christ gives to you when you're born again. You have one birth, and the second birth He gives to you is spiritual, not a physical one. And when you're born again, you can see the kingdom of heaven, is what Jesus said to the rabbi, wow. okay? Wow.
1: Yeah. I think we got time for one or two more, okay? okay. Uh, Uh, The next question that came, one of the popular ones. We talk about God being so loving, yet there is so much suffering in the world. How do you explain this? How could a good and powerful God also allow suffering and evil and injustice?
0: Yep. Hardest question. Let me give you a couple of illustrations and then give you the logical answer for this. Suppose I were to take my four-year-old grandson. And I say, ah, uh, I'm taking you for a visit with the doctor. And he says, why? I said, we are going to have some fun. So we take him to the doctor. And then he sees this big syringe being prepared, a long needle. And a needle is jabbed into his arm. And he screams a blood-curdling cry. And then he goes the next day to his friends and says, I don't know what my papa was up to last night. He took me to a person who just jabbed a needle in me, and then I saw him paying him. (laughs) And then 15 years go by, and there's an epidemic of sorts. And he finds out he's been spared. Because what happened years before with the jab of that needle? We're like children skipping through the corridors of the kingdom, not really knowing what everything is about. There's a young gal, at least she used to be young, in Atlanta, in uh, in Georgia, the state where I live. Her name is Ashlyn Blocker. She is born with a very rare disease. That rare disease is called SEPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis the sweat glands don't work either and She didn't feel pain if she stepped on a nail. She wouldn't feel it if she cut her foot with a knife or something she wouldn't know it wouldn't feel it and The people who look after her in school have to watch her very carefully after every sporting event They go through head to toe to make sure she hasn't injured itself herself and that there's no chance of some kind of infection coming in and her mother on uh television said my prayer every night is god please give Ashlyn a sense of pain if in our finite world we are able to see what pain does to remind us something is wrong is it impossible for an infinite god to be able to provide the reality of pain to remind you and me that something is wrong so here's what i actually Say to you in in, in the simplest possible terms and that is this when something is broken it hurts and The greatest gift that God has given to you and me Listen the greatest gift he's given you and me is the freedom to choose The freedom to choose and That freedom to choose was necessary because of the greatest ethic which is love. The greatest ethic is love. The greatest gift is the freedom to choose. But where there is the possibility of love, there will always be the possibility and the probability of pain. When you think about it, there are four possible created orders that God could have made. Number one, better to have no creation rather than this one. Number two, a created order where we would only choose good. A deterministic world. Number three, where there is no such thing as good and evil, an amoral world. So, no creation, compelled to choose only good, no such thing as good or evil, or this one, where there's the possibility of good and evil. This is the only possibility of the four created orders in which love is possible. It's the only one where love is possible. And if love is the supreme ethic, for God so loved that He gave, and makes it possible for you and me to enter heaven. I say to you, pain reminds us that we are broken. Number two, pain is an indicator of what it is that actually is ultimately broken and brings pain. Number three, love is a supreme ethic. Number four, the freedom to choose is a necessary part of your existence and mine. And where there is the freedom to choose, there'll always be the possibility of evil. And I just say to you, some of the greatest saints in history are not those who enjoyed interminable pleasure, but those who endured much suffering and pain. Annie Johnston Flint wrote these words, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater, he sendeth more strength when the labors increase, to added affliction he addeth his mercy, to multiplied trials is multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed are the days half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So let me close with this thought. You cannot possibly say that God is evil for allowing all of this To happen in this world. Because when you say there's such a thing as evil, you assume there's such a thing as good. When you say there's such a thing as good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law to decide between good and evil. And when you grant there's such a thing as a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's whom you're trying to disprove and not prove. If there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. The question self destructs. So you have to assume a moral law giver if the question is valid. But that's whom the questioner often is trying to disprove and not prove. And our captain of our salvation was made perfect and complete through suffering. We have a savior who went to the cross through suffering to provide liberty and strength for you and me to be in the eternal presence. So suffering has a role to play and a sustaining strength that God gives you and to me. By the way, Vince Vitale, my colleague, and I've written a book called Why Suffering. It's a pretty thick book. So get a hold of it and read it, and hopefully there'll be an aspect. Vince did his whole uh, doctoral dissertation on the subject at Oxford. So a wonderful uh, scholar. I think you'll find his chapters particularly helpful in that book. So I'll leave you with that.
2: God bless you. Thank,
1: Thank you. you.
2: I know we could go on and on and on, but uh, yeah, it's just not yeah. So you have to come back because we have well, at least is... seven or eight more questions before we even start. Just
0: remember off. to give me room 21. I'll be room here. Room 21, <laughs> Jimmy, Yeah.
2: Reserve it next time as soon as she <laughs> says it. Yeah. Hey, let's give uh, our brother uh, a hand and, and thank him so much for being here. <laughs> And there was something that, uh, that Ravi uh, couldn't do because uh, I'm sorry I'm emotional, but I'm really thankful he's here. Um, he couldn't bless us and this building. So I'm going to ask that, um, that Ravi would just say a prayer over us, that we can continue to spread God's uh, love throughout Bali and beyond. That's our goal. And so, Ravi, please pray for us and, and for this building.
0: Right. Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Don, for having me here. It's a real honor and uh, a privilege for my teammates and myself to be here, and yeah, we're rushing off tonight. I wish we weren't, but we are. Let's pray. How beautiful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be. Thy endless wisdom, boundless love and awesome purity. Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. Oh, Jesus, forgive us if we repeat your sacred name a thousand times a day. Because we feel so deeply in our heart that we want to call upon you. What an amazing service this has been. Voices that were raised to the heavens belting out the melodies to remind us that you put a song in our hearts. You give us that irresistible urge to sing. We want to sing because words alone cannot express our thoughts. And so the melody lifts us to heights that mere prose cannot do. I thank you for the leadership team in this church. Pastor Don and the passion you have poured into his heart. The passion for the peoples of this world. And we know so many are represented here from different languages and different cultures. How beautiful this is. A glimpse of what heaven is like. Father, I just pray that you will bless the leadership, keep them from evil, keep them from stumbling, keep them from division, help them come together as one voice before you, and bless them. But I thank you for those who through these years have so sacrificially given so that this building could stand. And even though the earth quivers and shakes and trembles, your building, which is the church, the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against it. I pray that you will truly bless this place of worship. Make it a place of supreme reverence. May many come here and find you as their savior. Thank you, Lord, that you're building your church. And may this body of believers, have a huge impact here in Bali to the outermost parts of the earth. Father, there are many here today who may need you, and I just pray that you will guide me as we close. And so, ladies and gentlemen, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to give you this opportunity. Maybe you've never really trusted in him, or you have, and you're wandering far away, or you're struggling in your faith before him. Will you give me the privilege of praying for you? And the way I'd ask you to do it is just to slip a hand up and put it down. I would like to pray for you, either as one coming to him or as one saying, I need help. I'm in trouble in my spiritual life. Ravi, please pray for me. Just slip your hand up, put it down. Yes, thank you. God bless you. Several hands all over the place here. Hand at the back. Right at the back. Thank you that you've had the courage to do that. You can put it down. But I'm going to do it one more time. If you have never really trusted in Him, and tonight you say, Ravi, I want Jesus as my Savior. Please pray for me. I need to take that step tonight. God has spoken to me. So one more time. If you have never done that, but tonight's the night for you, just slip that hand up high, and I would love to pray for you as we bring this to a close. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. On my left, thank you, ma'am. Last 30 seconds, just hold it up high. And you're saying, please pray for me. I need the Savior on my right there. God bless you, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you, ma'am. God bless you. Father, for these hands that have been raised up, I pray that truly, The present will touch the eternal. And tonight you will speak to their hearts and draw them closer to you. Bless this place where your people meet and may many come to know you because of all that is preached here and proclaimed here. Let your benediction rest upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who raised your hands, I hope you'll meet up with one of the pastors here. Find a way to make a connection so that you don't just leave it with an upraised hand, but leave it with some steps that they can help you follow up as well. God bless you. Thank you for having me and my colleagues. Be- Thank
2: you so much. Thank you, Sanj. So Thank you so much. Yeah, please, Sanj, how you follow, please. If you follow him, yeah, yeah. You may be seated. Hey, listen, I I don't want to, uh, you know, I know that, please just sit down one more minute. I know that uh, many of you have come from other churches, and we would never, we want you to go back full of passion into your churches to see many souls saved. That's our desire. But if you don't have a home, we'd love for you to come and join us. We're here on Sunday mornings. We have Bahasa uh, at 8.30, and at 10.30 we have English. Now... We're glad we didn't charge anything. If you know, Ravi really doesn't even charge anything to come. We're so blessed. It's just so off the charts. Uh, So if you'd like to help with the ministries, we just have an envelope. Just put something in there. There's boxes in the lobby. You know, whatever you can give. will just go to all the ministries that we do here. God bless you. We're going to sing one of the songs that you guys have written. So why don't you let loose and have a great night. Uh, I love you. And Jesus does, too. Amen? Hit it, guys.